This is a post-Christian podcast. We are the Sacred Collective. All are respected, all are heard, all are welcomed. Join us. Welcome to the Sacred Collective. Um, we're doing part two with uh, Reverend Dr. Scotty Williams. Hello. Um, if you are tuning into this one and have not listened to part one, please go back and listen to part one that was released a while back um, because we're going to probably be touching on some of the stuff that we talked about um, a few weeks ago. Um, so please do that. And then we're just going to kind of pick up from then so scotty how uh how are you doing uh a week later i'm exhausted um it was a week full of a lot of surprises um good ones and then um the news today from atlanta you know just is adding to Mm -hmm. it so it's been a week of you know mostly you know good surprises but um then there's always some bad ones as well yeah, I uh, I woke up yesterday to hear the news of, you know, another unarmed black man being murdered mm-hmm. at the hands of the police. And, of course, the narrative's being spun that, oh, well, because how it went down, you know, how the media says it, was that this guy um, who was in the drive-thru was intoxicated and, I know I've been intoxicated before, and sometimes you get the munchies, you get hungry, you want to sober up. Mm-hmm. And so he was in his car at the drive-thru, and he fell asleep. And, you know, people were trying to wake him up, whatever. And so someone called the cops, and cops were called, and then the, you know, the guy got out of the car, and then the cops were like, well, he had a taser, and blah 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 and so then this guy got out of the police custody and then you know was running away and then the cop shot him square in the back which anybody anybody knows that if you shoot someone in the back that's a coward's way yep you know and i mean i remember a few years ago there was a cop i want to say it was in south carolina or something another black man was running away and the cop shot him in the back yeah lee and and you know I can only say so much as a white person because I'm, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm privileged, but you just go back and say, you know, like how many times like we're in this midst of civil unrest all across the country and, you know, hearing and seeing, you know, other countries, you know, stepping up and, you know, supporting Black Lives Matter and not just George Floyd or others. It just seems like this is a never ending cycle that Americans just won't learn from. You no, know? Well, it's not just Americans. Here's the interesting part. It's like, so we had a, like Switzerland's had some massive rallies. In Geneva the other day, it was like 10,000 people. And the, yeah, 10,000. Germany had the largest demonstration in Europe. And then here in St. Gallen, they called for a demonstration um, two days ago, and like over a thousand people showed up from across the country. I mean, they came rolling deep into St. Gallen. And I was looking at the comments of this, and you know, and people, you know, this, 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 this narrative that goes around: America sucks, America's racist, and Europe—they're more enlightened and more progressive. And and I've said it time and time again, you know, that Europe has its issues because I looked at so many comments to that rally that was here and it was a peaceful rally. Um, the police department, as far as I know, released an article. I read it um, unless it was from some fake, you know, um, Stadtpolizei website. Um, but I looked at the police's response and they said that it was a respectful and peaceful protest and it ended on time. And 
to make sure that it went well. Um, the 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 um, Black Lives Matter protest here in Sotgalen, um, it was initiated actually by the Frauenstreik or the Women's March um, Committee mm. because Saturday was also the Women's March Day. And so just like the LGBTQ plus community um, with Pride Month has said they're going to give a focus to the issues that black people face, uh, well, the Committee for the Frauenstreik said the same thing. And so it was orderly. It was peaceful. As far as I know, there was no violence. No, no one broke anything. And then the response that you're seeing, the, the comments to the articles is, um, of course, this the legitimate fear of corona spreading, understandable. Mm -hmm. But there were people, you know, here saying white lives matter. All lives matter. And these these are Swiss folk. You know, these aren't American. These are Swiss people. Blue lives matter. You know. And and so it's. There's a, there's this this mentality that's that that that's 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 outside of America. It's, it's it's a widespread mentality, and I'm just sitting there going, "Of course, all lives matter. Of course, blue lives matter. No one's not saying that. But if you believe all lives matter, then you shouldn't have a problem saying black lives matter, right? You right. know, and it's just I man. So yeah, whew. Well, and I found this out this morning, um, and like I, like you just said, I don't know if this is from a fake uh, site or not, but apparently in the last two weeks in a smaller town of California, um, they found two black men hanging from trees. Yep. And that narrative you're hearing, like people are like, the police are just like, oh, no foul plays involved. You know, these people like hung themselves, you know, as a form of suicide. And they're trying to spin the narrative of like, well, so many, you know, millions of I think there's like 49 million Americans are unemployed due to the coronavirus and whatever. And people were like, why in the hell would black people, if they killed themselves, want to do it from, you know, hanging from a tree? Mm. And they're like, now people are trying to cover it up and. I mean, I'm just so blown away, this, the tone deafness and ignorance from so many people that it's like we're seeing, you know, racism unfold in front of our eyes in America. The world's watching as well. And we're just kind of like, I don't know, like a kid that knows right from wrong and we're, we keep on doing wrong and then just kind of say, well, we're not bad. We're not racist. And I'm not saying every human being in America is racist. That would be foolish to say, but to also erase the, the idea that we're not a racist country is just, I mean, absurd. Yeah. What I think it is, man. And this is, this is, um, I don't know if I'm taking us off track from your original point, but this is something I wanted to bring up. Um, and this came to mind after we talked last, last time. Um, so, you know, Carl Jung, Right. The, the mm -hmm, mm -hmm. famous Swiss um, philosopher, um, Swiss thinker. Well, he had an assistant named Marie-Louise von Franz. And Marie-Louise von Franz, she talked about living myths. And she said that, you know, civilizations, what um, what undergirds patriotism, the, the ideology behind it, what, what most most civilizations rest upon is a living myth. And in the West, or in America, our living myth is this whole idea of, you know, revolution, this whole idea of, you know, American exceptionalism. There's all of these things that go into our living myths. And, um, but every living myth has, you know, a negative side that no one wants to talk about. You know, and for us, it is, you know, this, a part of it is our history with race, race, our history with, you know, white supremacy, slavery, all of that, all of that's tied into our um, living myth as Americans. And what's happening, and civilizations, when you break the living myth of, of their origins or of why they are the way they are, their idea of themselves, um, then that civilization can either reform itself or it can fight for that myth and fall apart in the process. And so 
what's happening is, is that it's not, this is, you know, it is about race, but it's bigger than race. This is the crack in our living myth as Americans, you know, and we're starting to see it wasn't just a group of rebellious British citizens who, you know, fought and freed themselves from the crown that built up this country. It wasn't just exceptionalism that built this country, uh, our country. Um, Part of our foundations is that we discriminated against some, that some were privileged over others. Slavery is a part of it. And, um, and so as this is being exposed, you know, and monuments are being torn down, um, our living myth is, is going away. And what saddens me is this, like you were saying, we're seeing, you know, the flaws in it right before our eyes. We're seeing this stuff unfold when it comes to race. And just to see the number of people fighting to hang on to the flaw, to, to, to this part of our living myth, we'll say, no, we are still one of the most prosperous countries in the world, um, one of the, the great countries of the world. While we're in this position, as Cornel West would say, why don't we actually choose reform to reform the system, you know, but instead people want to hang on to the old living myth. And so I think, you know, it's about race, but it's, it's bigger than race. We're at a very pivotal moment in American history. Yeah. And, and I, and I agree with you fully on that. And I've had friends and family who listen to the sacred collective, who um, know you as well as me. And, you know, they were really touched by our, you know, candid conversation. They, appreciated your insights but i had people even say like i couldn't even have this conversation because i'm so worn out i'm so exhausted but these were white people saying this this wasn't you know black people or other people of color and and i looked at them and i said i i'm exhausted i'm like but i'm a white person feel feel your your tiredness your angst your exhaustion and Pretend for a second that you're a black person. I said how you're feeling, the exhaustedness, the anger, the any kind of feeling that you get, the emotion, they have to deal with that every single day. Yeah. And and some maybe more than others, but I said that is why as a white person, as an ally, how I understand my privilege, how I understand, you know, all of that mm. is like I need to have these conversations and I do have a platform of this podcast, not a very big one compared to, you know, other talking heads, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's exhausting to talk about, but it's, uh, it's something we need to talk about, not just you and me, but our, but our country, our culture, the media, the church movies, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, I think Americans for far too long have been quiet about it. Because they're like, oh, I don't know how to talk about it. I don't, uh, you know, I'm uncomfortable. But, you know, to me, that's just a BS excuse for maybe if we don't talk about it, it's going to go away. And we have seen in the last few weeks, it's not going away and it's not going away anytime soon. So I respect people who say that they're exhausted talking about it, but you can feel exhausted now. You can, you know, get your rest. You can, you know, get your energy but then continue to talk about what's going on because if we don't care about what's happening to our black brothers and sisters, then we're doing a disservice to them, to ourselves, to our country. I would say, you know, expand it a little bit, like, because this doesn't just affect black folks. I mean, yeah, we're kind of the main target of this stuff, but it affects, you know, white brothers and sisters as well. You know, because we talked about last time how, um, you know, there's a segment of the white community that historically has been disenfranchised. They have um, been seen as expendable by by um, by the the part of the white community that's benefiting from this and historically has benefited. And I say this, if black people don't get free you know, then we all don't get free. You know, this affects your community like it affects mine. This affects the Asian community like it affects mine. We're all, you know, yep, 
black people are bearing, you know, a part of this burden alone, but we all are kind of in it together. You know, and I think about like, you know, in this conversation, I think about, um, well, I believe one of my great grandparents, um, my great grandfather, he, he was a white man and he um, lived in the South. Um, as far as I know, he had come over from Europe, according to one story, but he married a black woman, my great grandmother, and he suffered, you know, from, you know, it, it affected his life this whole whole um, system. And there are other, you know, friends of mine who, who have stories similar to that about great grandparents. And so I'm like, you know, this is, this is coming at all of us. And, and, you know, I speak up and I know you speak up, not just for the freedom of black folk, but for, for, for the freedom of, of everyone. You know, I want to see more situations or, or more friendships like ours. You know, I find it amazing. It would have been unheard of you know, a generation ago in my family that one of our children has a white person, uh, you know, a white man for a godfather, you know, that would have been unheard of, you know, a generation ago. And and so I want to see more of this. And for the people who are tired, I say, think of it like when you have a workout and there's that moment where you're about to get your second wind, you know, you're ready to give up. But, you know, if I just keep going you know, there's three more minutes, you know, on the clock, three more. And, and I just keep going. I can finish this workout. I think, you know, we're closer. You know, there's some who are pessimistic and say, well, we're further from the second wind of the breakthrough or, or justice than, than um, ever before. But I think we're close and we just have to suck it up and push through the fatigue, have these conversations, um, look in the mirror, face the ugliness, face the pain, and then the cure or, or, or justice, it will come. And so, yeah. Yeah, those are, I mean, those are great words. Um, and I, there's, there's a book that's going around that people are saying churches, uh, and I want to get it, but obviously for good reasons, it's sold out. Um, it's called White Fragility. Mm -hmm. And I don't know who the author who wrote it, obviously um, a black individual. And I just read up a little bit on it yesterday on Amazon and Wikipedia. And the whole, the whole thrust of it is this author was saying how white people are so uncomfortable talking about race. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I, I, I personally, and this is just me, maybe it's because as you well know, I, all my nieces and nephews are mixed race except for one. I have 11 nieces and nephews and one is actually Caucasian, mm -hmm. just fully Caucasian. All of them are either mixed, you know, African American and white or Mexican and white or Korean or white. So yeah, I have a different take on it because, you know, my family is very interracial, but I feel like so many people and, and I'm going to actually critique, um, you know, mainline churches. I mean, I've already critiqued. Everyone knows I critique the evangelical church, not because all of them are bad or evil, but they've been very quiet on these things. But even mainline churches, even mainline liberal churches uh, are not doing a very good job. Yes, they're going out and protesting. Yes, they're holding up signs, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, so on and so forth. But when you get to these congregations and you sit and hear their voices it's the white people still they're like they'll say oh yeah this is all bad we need to stand up we need to fight we need to accept our black brothers and sisters but when you you sit down and you get to talk to them there's still that white fragility they're it's they're fragile they're saying you know yeah, this is wrong, but, you know, my property or my job or my kids, I want them to be safe. I want this. And it, it's just like they're, they're standing up in this midst of the civil unrest, all this stuff. And it's like they're so fragile. And, mm -hmm. and like our church is trying to pick out this book to read. You know, they were talking about the new Jim Crow or whatever. And I want to advocate to say, let's, Let's read mm. White Fragility because 
my my denomination, which I won't say, I'm sure most listeners know, is 70% are, yeah, well, no, it's pretty much like 90% white. The average age is 70, and it's white males or females. And I think we need a good swift kick in the pants to say, you know, white people need to wrestle with our privilege. We need to wrestle with our fragility and it's good to protest. It's good to stand up. It's good to support black businesses, so on and so forth. But we need to come to the plate and say, Hey, you know what? Like we have the power, whether we asked for it or not. And we need to stand up and say, we need to check our, our own stuff about race Mm. at the door. And, and, you know, if we want to kind of have that, take down that mentality of like, oh, well, white people are powerful, then we need to step back and say our our whiteness, our white heritage, our European heritage, if we don't want to be this supreme race that so many people know that we are, then we need to come to terms with our fragility and we need to understand that white people are just one race among many. Yeah, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Change, you know, the the solution to white fragility. Well, I mean, I haven't said it in this way, but I've mentioned the idea. But I think the solution to white fragility is that white folks get together among themselves. And in that comfortable setting where there's no people of color around, you know, to critique, but just among themselves, all milieus of the white community or representatives of all milieus should get together and have a discussion about race from a white perspective. Because, you know, and, and I'll say this about, you know, in, in, um, yeah, as a pat on the back for white brothers and sisters, you know, one thing that white people are good at is when there's, when there's a problem, they get together, you know, and discuss it. They get together and they at a town hall, they have their town hall meetings to discuss the issue in the town. White brothers and sisters are good in getting together when, um, you know, with all kinds of committees, you know, um, for a neighborhood association or, or different things like, like that. Um, if you can get together for those hard discussions, you surely can get together and talk about race. And, you know, and what I think keeps it from happening is that there is this, this there's this um this idea, and I think it's rooted in a fear. Um, but there's this idea that well, white people can't get together, um, you know, and talk about race because if we do, then that's racist, you know. And I've heard so many mm-hmm. people say that, and there's this fear. Well, if 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 I say something, you know, then I might say the wrong thing. So I just rather not say anything at all and keep things as they are. And, and I'm like, okay, but what if? people of color were removed from the room, then, you know, there's really nothing wrong you can say to, to each other, you know, but, but the white community needs to have that conversation. And, and I'll say this, and we as people of color need to say, you know, please, white people, get together and talk. You know, like the same thing, um, we have a, a similar issue here. Um, when we did our let's talk about race uh, as we were advertising it, um, m- my wife had actually said, um, she was like, well, you know, in, in Swiss German or in Switzerland, we don't use the word ras, you know, for race. And I said, well, why not? And she said, because it reminds people too much of the Third Reich from Hitler, you know, and, 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 and all of these, you know, this racist past. So we avoid using that word. And I said, okay, but you say racismus, um, for racism, you know, so you're still using that word just within that. And she said, you're right. And I said, no matter what past you have, you know, yeah, yeah, there was Hitler. Yeah, there's the Ku Klux Klan. Yes, there are people who've used race in a negative way. It still does not um, mean that you don't have the right to get together and talk about it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and also think, you know, um, some white brothers and sisters don't see themselves as having a race, 
or as having a culture. They're like, I'm just a human being. It's like, um, okay, yes, we're all human beings. That's a given, but you are a part of a community, whether you like it or not. You're a part of a group, whether you like it or not. And you have a responsibility to and within that group to talk about the problems. And and so, so yes, I think that until white brothers and sisters get together and have that discussion, um, we're, we're going to go, we'll, we'll make progress here and there, but we'll go, but we won't make the progress that we need to make to get us to where we need to go. You know, sorry about that monologue, man. <laughs> no, you're good. And, and um, for the sake of anonymity, if people um, who I'm going to talk about, listen to the podcast I don't know if they do, but I was part of a discussion, like you were saying, in a church community where mm. we brought in, I was part of this committee, we brought in two people to into the community that I'm, one of the communities I'm a part of, to talk about race. To And this was back last fall, so this was before a lot of what's happening currently. And we had this African-American, you know, brother who came in, was highly involved, in the community, organizing stuff. And then we had another um, man who is Chinese. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he spends his time partly here in the Twin Cities and then partly up um, up in northern Minnesota and maybe during the cabin season or whatever. And up there, he's like, I'm the only person of color. Mm. I, everyone else is white. And we were promoting it, promoting it, putting it on the Internet, putting it on our Facebook pages, word of mouth. And usually our gatherings that we have for the, this particular evening, you know, we usually get anywhere between 15 to 20 people. Mm -hmm. And besides this committee that I'm a part of and the pastors, there was four people that showed up, which was really disheartening. But then when they started talking about racism, when they started talking about white privilege and they started talking about white fragility. I was open. I was, you know, I heard the critiques. I've been in seminary. I, you know, had to break down my own, you know, issues. And you and I have been friends, like you've said, you know, far over a decade. And we've had these very interesting conversations. And you can, you have seen my process of being like, no, no, uh, you know, I'm not racist. I don't have, you know, my ancestors weren't racist to now where I'm at today of being like, yeah, just because of the color of my skin, I have this power, but I remember there was this individual who I was sitting next to and she's from small town, rural, you know, Midwest. And she, what she said just showed me that whole understanding of white fragility. Mm. And she had said, well, I'm not racist. And I disagree that you're saying that all white people are racist or all white people have privilege. And she's like, in fact, my cousin is married to an Asian. And it's like, I wanted to be like, okay, do you want a medal? Like, look at my family, you know, like, look who I uh, am connected, you know, and, and married into and my best friend and, you know, whoever. But just, just the visceral reaction that this individual said makes me even say, you know, even the liberal churches, some are doing better than others. I will give them that. But, it just shows me that even this liberal understand this liberal Christianity, progressive Christianity, we talk about it. We want to, you know, you know, topple white supremacy, white privilege, but yet so many white people are fragile because they're, they don't understand that simply because of the color of their skin, they have this power because in their head, they're like, I'm not rich. I'm not powerful. I live in a small home. I, you know, this, this, and this, and they're not understanding the bigger picture of what people are fighting for. And it's not, oh, you have a better job than me, or you live in a better house. It is like what we've talked about last time, the systemic racism that is seeping in through every part of our culture in America. And what also saddened me is race is an important thing to talk about. You know, a lot of progressive denominations talk about, you know, creation care and, you know, you know, ecological justice, which is important. But when it comes to race, it's almost like, uh, I, I don't really know how to talk about it. So I'm just going to punt on it. And it's just, it's just, 
it just saddens me, yeah. you know, and I, I know you and I have talked, it just saddens me how we as white people, even in mainline progressive denominations are doing part of my friends, a shit job at trying to help these societal ills. Yeah. Like, like, you know, and this is the interesting thing. Like when you mentioned, you know, the pro progressives, um, most people, you know, like forget that Malcolm X had actually warned the black community about, he's like, you know, progressives also have issues too, because when the civil rights movement was forming, it was many of those traditionalist kind of conservative Christian groups that were against it. Um, mm -hmm. And so Dr. King, you know, or the Reverend Dr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., many of his supporters, white, his white allies were, you know, liberals, were progressives. And Malcolm X warned, he said, they even have issues as well. He's like, so... Um, I think the negative side that's come out of the civil rights, you know, era is just this, that because someone is progressive, they don't have, you know, issues, issues with race. And it's like, no, um, you can have issues with race, even if you fall into a progressive, um, you know, into that branch of, you know, into that, into that strand of thinking or that line of, of, of thought, um, so, so yeah, it's, I mean, Malcolm X, you know, he warned us about this and no one listened and or very few listened, and we went ahead and progressive brothers and sisters, you know, thumbs up to them for, you know, marching with us and remembering, you know, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and having, you know, um, black liberation theology courses and all of that. But still, we didn't deal with those issues um, in this regard that brother Malcolm pointed out. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I just feel like sometimes banging my head against the wall because we've seen what transpired back in the sixties within that civil rights movement. And like you said, we had, you know, brothers like Malcolm X and, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. And it's like, they've both said they were on different, you know, opposite ends of how they felt like we, you know, things should happen. But when we look at them in the history books of like, oh, these are great men who, you know, sometimes liked each other, sometimes more or less didn't like each other. But we look at them in the history books for all the great things we, that they've done for race relations. And at least with Martin, you know, within the church, but we've almost put them on this pedestal, but then haven't taken to heart what they've really said. Well, we've done to Martin, and it's easier to do that with Martin um, because he's Christian. You know, we can't do it with Malcolm because, well, he, he was a Muslim, you know. Um, and so it's kind of far into our religion, shall we say, and to also the Judeo-Christian ethos of America. He, he was, he was, it was harder to, to assimilate Brother Malcolm. But what we, but with King, we've done the same thing that that we've done to all of our saints, you know, um, we, you know, Joan of Arc, what, what, what we did to Joan of Arc or what the, what, what Chris, what, well, you know, the Western church did to St. Joan mm. of Arc is what we've done to Martin Luther King Jr. You know, Joan of Arc was a radical voice and people in the church hated her. You know, she had her issues, you know, obviously like she wasn't perfect, but, but she really spoke, um, you know, up for something and really was a thorn in the side of the church. And then what did leaders of her day do? They burned her at the stake as a heretic, you know, and, she, and then centuries later, what now, if you say Jean de Arc, Jean of Arc, you know, she is a symbol for feminist, you know, radical feminist. They love her um, in Louisiana, wherever we have a statue of her um, in front, in the center of town near Jackson square. Um, She's become this this icon. What um, we we take these radical prophets and then we sanitize them and make them saints, and we take the nice quotes about um, the, the nice quotes that make us feel good from them, uh, the positive stuff, and then we leave out the stuff that makes us uncomfortable. And we've done that with Martin Luther King uh, or with the Reverend Doctor Martin Luther King Jr. We've sold, we've sanitized him. 
We, we have statues of him like Joan of Arc. We've put him in stained glass windows as well. Um, we've named streets after the brother. Um, and then um, we, we have a holiday, a feast day devoted to him. Uh, and we have breakfast with the Black Gospel Choir in the morning, you know, and, and citywide gatherings and, and everyone gets a day off. Um, um, and, and then we, we read the I Have a Dream speech. But we don't look at, you know, the, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s radical stuff. We don't look at, you, you know, uh, um, one positive thing about what's happening now, I will say this, is that people are getting into, um, they're so worn out from, from, from I have a dream because of the nightmare that we're in, that they're searching Martin, uh, Mar um, Brother Martin's works and, you know, and getting into the radical stuff that most people don't know. But mm -hmm. I think we are where we are because Martin was easier to to um, sanitize. He was easier to um, to put in stained glass. You, you can't put Mar uh, Malcolm, brother Malcolm, in stained glass. Maybe make a statue of him, but you know, but you can't put him in stained glass. You can't really sanitize him. He he is what what he is, and um, yeah. Kind of pivoting a little bit, um, and thank you for those words. Those that was fantastic. Um, there's you and I both grew up evangelical, and mm -hmm. you know we have some, like we've said, we have not that we can fully divorce ourselves from that because that was part of who shaped us, who formed us in our faith. Mm -hmm. Even though we would probably reject a lot of. Um, their teachings now, but I want your opinion on this. And, and I know probably some of our listeners might be more evangelical. They might be on that, um, spectrum of faith. Um, there's a worship leader, um, and you've heard of, I won't say his name. Um, but you know, you've heard of Bethel music, right? That big kind of like worship, uh, Bethel Redding. They're kind of like a, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So this individual actually, um, it's a worship pastor there. Uh, and I'm sure if our listeners could probably just Google it and know who I'm talking about, but he is actually going around to sites of protests all across the country. And he's setting up like him and his crew. Um, they have like a stage, they have other musicians, they have, um, you know, a full like crew, like they're on tour and going to these places and having worship service, trying to unify people. And they just on Saturday, because they were supposed to meet at North Central, where I, where I went to college, and North Central um, canceled it because there was a lot of what, quote unquote, they said threats. Um, but I think it was because of an upheaval of alum and students being like, this is really insensitive. But mind you, this guy is the prototypical worship leader, mm -hmm. white guy, skinny jeans, you know, whatever. And he went to the memorial site of where George Floyd was murdered, and they've made it into like a shrine to him. The whole kind of like intersection is shut down. And people didn't know, especially the black community, didn't know who this guy was. And he set up his stage and just started doing praise and worship. And he was like, oh, well, God's going to move in this country or God's moving, whatever. And I, mm. I, I, I mean, I'm not into that world anymore. I don't listen to work. I'm more into hymns and liturgy than praise and worship. But what, what do you think as a person of color when you hear people, white people kind of doing that? And, and this person has been vocal, um, of, his he's like he's like i support the black lives matter movement but i don't support them as an organization because their organization is anti you know anti-ethical towards the beliefs that i have so it's in a way he's like i support pe black people i like black people but i don't support them as an organization because they're pro-choice they're more liberal they're blah 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 so i mean just in a brief i don't know little blurt what do you think about people who are trying to i would say kind of hijack what's going on just for their own selfish quote-unquote religious desires 
when when you said this, um, there was this quote that came to mind um, by sister, white sister, um, Kristen Howerton. And she says, Christians do not treat the protest as a new mission field. Do not go to love on the people or to lead the people in prayer. Do not go to be a Christian voice in the crowd or to share God's love or to witness to people. Go to fight systematic racism, a systemic racism. Man, we've been, we said it to theology too much. I'm reading this and I'm, <laughs> I'm reading this and I'm, I'm saying systematic. Go to fight systemic racism and racial violence. The end. I, I'll say this, you know, like before I comment, because I consider myself still evangelical, but a classical Reformation evangelical in the line of Zwingli and Calvin and Luther in them. Um, but what I think happens, you know, my, like, like, and also to be fair to the, to this brother, I don't think he's doing it, you know, and if, and those, um, in or evangelicals like him aren't doing it to take over or hijack the movement. I think that there's a teaching, you know, and we grew up with it in the, in the low, um, non-liturgical strand of evangelicalism that says the world is your mission field. And what's driving this is a missiology rather than a sociology. Mm. So he's seeing it as, you know, there's a mission that's there. And how do we do missions? Um, well, we do missions by um, praise and worship, evangelism, you know. And, and then there's this idea that, you know, um, Jesus is the answer. You know, and so if I go and I tell people about Jesus, you know, and spread the good news in this way and put up, you know, this stage and do worship, if I do missions, you know, then missions will solve the problem. And to say, but this isn't a mission. This isn't about, um, yes, there is a missiological element where you are going to proclaim the gospel. But, you know, uh, um, there is also, there is a soci, but this is a sociological kind of thing going on. This is a social problem. And yeah, the gospel addresses it. And how does the gospel address it? Well, the gospel doesn't, you know, doesn't say go and set up a stage and sing songs and, and, um, and, and, and declare God over the city. No, you look at the, um, at St. James, um, the, the epistle of James, it says, you know, faith without works is dead. There are works that have to be done to break down systemic racism. There are works that have to be done to, to stop police brutality. There are works that have to be done to heal the racial divide. And, and I would look at them as my grandma would say, I'm sorry, honey, but the works aren't putting up a stage and singing songs. Yeah, yeah, you can, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, maybe if, if, if evangelicals who are part of the work of, of justice, you know, part of the works necessary, you know, um, if they want to get together and have a time of worship and spiritual refreshment, then yes, that works, you know, then yes, set up a stage in a corner and say for the evangelicals in the crowd, let's get together and sing and all are welcome to join us. But I'd want to say, you know, this isn't, this isn't a mission. Um, this is a sociological, or this is a social deal that you're going at. And, and the typical sing songs and say a prayer and declare God over the city doesn't cut the mustard in this one, you know? So yeah, th that, that's what I think, you know, is they're coming at it with missiology and not understanding that, that this is, this isn't, this isn't a mission. There is a missiological element, but this ain't no mission trip. Yeah. And I, and I agree fully with that assessment because look, exactly what you were saying, they're looking at it at, in a missiological sense instead of a sociology sense and societal issue. And, and I, I've talked with a lot of my family who still are conservative Christians, evangelical. And I said, the big thing with that differs evangelicalism to, let's say, mainline denominations is evangelicals want conversion. That's how they do stuff, evangelism. And other denominations want conversation. Yep. And I'm an individual who wants to do a conversation because when you do a conversation, there is no a salvific 
you know, sanctification part of it. If that happens, great, awesome, high five, you know, good, good on you for doing that. But what this worship leader did in what I think his organization does is they have this missiology of doing that and they're thinking, oh, all these, you know, people who are hurting in these communities, maybe if we can show them God or Jesus, then they can, you know, this is all that's going to happen. And I'm thinking, and this might sound controversial to some, but I'm like, this ne- doesn't, in my opinion, what we're going through doesn't necessarily have anything to do with Jesus or Christianity. It has to do with people who hate other people because of the color of their skin. Yeah. And and that's just wrong. Yeah. You know, when you said this, I, I re- I'm reminded of a quote from, um, I don't know where he, he would stand, you know, um, with Black Lives Matter, these issues. So you know, I'm not saying he hold that he's an ally or that he's against it, but he um, he was one of our theology professors, Dan, um, Dr. Dan Gertner, Daniel Gertner. And he made a very interesting quote that stuck with me. He said, you know, he meets, um, he, meet, he, he would meet a lot of evangelicals who would say to him, don't give me theology. Don't give me, you know, um, ethics of these things. Just give me Jesus. And his response would be, but what Jesus are you giving people? And this is the question I want to ask evangelical brothers and sisters. You know, it's okay. I fully agree as a classical Reformation evangelical. I agree. You know, the world needs Jesus. Jesus is the answer, you know, um, for this. Um, You know, but what Jesus are we giving people? And then the other thing is, 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 and, and, you know, is also um, how are we giving Jesus in this, in this situation? Because, how you give Jesus in one situation doesn't work in, in another, you know? And, and St. Paul says this about being all things to all people. You know, there are some folks that, yes, the song and the stage and, 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 and the Romans road and the Emmaus road and whatever other road in the ancient, uh, in the biblical world you can think of, you know, whatever other ev- evangelistic method, it will work. But there are other situations where none of where that does that 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 isn't the method to give people Jesus. You know, Jesus doesn't come that way. This is a situation where if you want to give people Jesus, it means having the difficult conversations about race. Even if you never come to a point of, of agreement, it means sitting and listening to that person out of love which is a steadfast commitment to the well-being of others, not just a feeling. But it's sitting with that person, having a conversation out of love and saying, even if we don't agree, I still want to listen to you because I care about you. You know, um, it, it means, you know, um, you know, bearing the, the sufferings, the sufferings of others. You know, Jesus, you know, scripture says, weep with those that weep and, and mourn with those that, that mourn, you know, and you don't, and, and, um, there are situations where, you know, like like when when you experience a death in deaths in your family, you know, I'm not feeling, you know, I, I I'm not a death hasn't happened in my family. I'm not sharing in that death, but because I'm your friend, I'm your brother, and I love you, I'm gonna weep with you, even though there there's even though that death hasn't hit me in that way. You know, and I want to say that's how we should be giving Jesus to people. We should be standing with them in this situation. You should be standing with brothers and sisters in solidarity. You should be listening to your black brothers and sisters and other brothers and sisters of color. You shouldn't be putting up a stage and singing worship songs. And I'll say this as well. My criticism of that method that this brother from Bethel Reading is doing is that that this is what we've always done. We've always gotten together mm-hmm. and prayed. We've always gotten together and sang hymns. We've always gotten together and and, and worshipped in some way and treated it from this mythological uh, uh, missiological perspective. So and it hasn't worked. So you know, you know. So the way that we should be giving Jesus in this situation is totally different from that. Um, we should be, you know, putting uh, there should be action. 
not songs and presentations with words. And then again, we have to think about what Jesus are we presenting to people in this case? And I think we've been presenting the wrong Jesus, a a white, Mm -hmm. a a white, um, low church, evangelical Jesus ain't going to work in this. Um, we, you know, or, or, or the, the peace loving savior, meek and mild ain't going to work in this. The type of Jesus we need is the Jesus that cleansed the temple. We need a Christ to go into this, these social structures that take advantage and not just the black people, you know, also of white brothers and sisters, because there are white folk who are disenfranchised by uh, by uh, um our 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 uh, how how we we do race there are white people disenfranchised by this issue we need a jesus who goes in and stands alongside the disenfranchised and overturns tables and and runs uh, you know and, and breaks open the pens and lets the doves go we need that disruptive jesus not that peaceful holy meek and mild christ and so yeah <laughs> that would be yeah. no you we were right on the same wavelength because you, you took that story right out of my head. Maybe this is why we're such good friends. Is we can finish each other's thoughts. Yep. Now, um, I would, and, and kind of the narratives that are, are being brought out is, you know, especially from a lot of people. I mean, I, it's probably the same with you. Tons of family and friends across the, like, the theological paradigm of where people are. And a lot of what the white brothers and sisters in the faith are saying is like, you know, Jesus doesn't want to protest. Jesus, you know, is, you know, hates racism and loves everyone, blah, 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 blah. But we take, we make this Jesus and sanitize him into this God that we want him to be. And I think everyone does that. Um, all races do that. Uh, you know, all denominations do that. We, we make and sanitize Jesus to work for us. And, and, I know white people do that, uh, you know, very badly, but, um, I, I, and so when, uh, all this rioting and protesting stuff is happening, I have always just been ingrained in my mind when Jesus went to the temple and he went crazy in a good way. And, and I tell people like when I picture Jesus, I don't picture Jesus as this white European Jesus with long flowing, you know, blonde hair, and riding on a donkey or whatever, I see Jesus, you know, as a dark-skinned Jewish man um, from Bethlehem going in and kind of saying, "What the hell are you doing? Like, what are you?" Not only what, and I don't think it was just the temple that it was supposed to be. What it was signifying, it was like this is oppression, this is wrong, like, and we forget, especially as Christians. And we forget as human beings that Jesus got angry a lot and he rebuked people a lot because they didn't get it or they were, people were like, well, I'm doing this in your name. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, if it wasn't Peter, where he literally looked at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Mm-hmm. And, and Satan literally is translated, you know, Satan as deceiver. So literally what he was saying to Peter was, get behind me, deceiver. You're deceiving people with the message you're giving, because that's not my message. Yep. That's not God's message. And I feel like we are looking at what's happening. And like what you said, so many Christians want conversion to happen where we're, we're needing honest conversation. And I feel like, you know, people are like, well, where's God in all this? And I want to feel like God, God has made it quite clear in scriptures that there is a time to be angry. There is a time to have that righteous anger. There is a time to call out the powers that be and be like, what you're doing is absolutely wrong. You're deceiving people. You're deceiving society. You're, you're doing the systemic racism and enough's enough. And I don't feel Christians across the board are actually standing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, some are. Don't get me wrong. Some denominations are better than others, but we, we have the sanitized version of Jesus. Of like him sitting on the sideline, if you view Jesus as you know male, and we're seeing Jesus sitting on the sideline, twiddling Jesus's thumbs, and it's like no, Jesus is in the nitty gritty with with everyone, and is like, hey, this is wrong. Stop killing 
my black brothers and sisters that I created and I love. Mm -hmm. And, and that, like, I, I just get so pissed when we don't realize that Jesus had anger, that Jesus had this anger that changed things. And you look at the temple and, and how he just went crazy Mm. that things were wrong. Mm. So yeah, kind of what you were saying. Yeah, man, it's, it's, you know, and again, and going back to also your point about how we've, we've sanitized, um, <clears throat> we've sanitized Jesus. I mean, we've sanitized the prophets as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we've, we've made it to where, you know, like we look at Elijah and we say, oh, well, Elijah was a great man of God and he stood up for, for, for the Lord. Or Isaiah was a great man of God and he stood up for the Lord. Deborah was a great woman of God and she stood up for the Lord. Yes, and and I think what evangelical brothers and sisters of of the strand of evangelicalism we're talking about, um, low church evangelicals in, in this sense, I think what these brothers and sisters, um, the way they that they would see it as we grew up, they would see it as the prophets simply stood up for doctrine, Jesus simply stood up for doctrine, but they don't look at the fact that there was a social element that the prophets often talked about, you know, um, they, they were saying, you know, um, Isaiah talks numerous times about how God's charge against Israel, one of them at least, was how they treated the poor. You know, this, you know, poor and widow and orphan comes up so many times in Holy Scripture, and it comes among the prophets. But what we've done is we've sanitized the prophets and said it's all about doctrine, and then we cherry pick the verses that we like and we use them at baby dedications and weddings and all that other stuff. And, you know, and then we've done the same with Christ, not understanding that it wasn't just doctrine they talked about, but it was deeds as well when it comes to, to you know, to, to, to social issues. Um, and then here's the other thing with when we talk about faith, faith and works. And this is a problem. And I think it feeds what we're talking about. If I go off track, please let me know. Um, but also how uh, there's this problem in Protestantism when it comes to faith and works. We don't want to be like the Catholics who all about works and stuff. We want to look at faith, you know, issues of faith. And and I think that feeds this, this as well, man. So, um, yeah, I hope what I said just made sense. (laughs) It did. Um, and we should wrap up soon. Um, cause this is going to be if when both of these are out. Only going to it's going to be two and a half hours of us talking. Which wow. I could talk with you for hours on it. But the last thing I it would kind of be my recommendation, and also this um, really poignant point that this person said. Um, one of my favorite comedians is Dave Chappelle. Yep. And Dave Chappelle is one of those people, one of those comedians who does not care who he offends, does not care. He picks on black people as a black man. He picks on whites. He picks on Christians, whatever. Uh, he dropped um, a secret um, stand-up bit, um, and it's called 8 Minutes and 46 Seconds oh, for yeah. obvious reasons. And so he didn't – and everyone on the internet was like, oh, it's on Netflix. It's on Netflix. No, there's a YouTube channel called Netflix is a Joke. So things that are too maybe controversial – comedians will go on there and it's this channel it's called netflix is a joke well what he did is he had it if people don't know dave Chappelle doesn't live in new york or la he actually lives like on a farm in southern ohio with his family and so he had this like little gazebo that he was in on his property and he they was really cool they all social distance he gave everyone a Chappelle face mask and it was only like a half hour and he he just went off. I mean, he went off on what's happening. And the one thing he said, though, was that he was like, oh, um, Don Lemon, who is, as people know, um, CNN, which is our one of our cable news um, networks, um, who's also a black man, um, called out, you know, the Hollywood elite, the celebrities, and saying, why are you so silent? And he, uh, he, you know, called out black people specifically and says, 
you know, why, why aren't black celebrities standing up and calling these injustices out? Mm-hmm. And, and the one thing that Dave Chappelle said is he was like, you know, and he's like, this is the dilemma. And I guess they actually have a good rapport. They're friends. And, and Dave Chappelle, what he said, which was so poignant, he's like, this isn't my fight. He's like, yes, I'm a black man. And he's like, and any black person, whether you're rich, poor, anywhere in between, he's like, we deal with this shit every day, every day. But he's like, what's happening right now? He's like, this is the streets. Yeah. He's like, this is the streets. And Dave Chappelle, he's like, I'm going to stand back as a black man, as a black celebrity and, and say, you want to know what's happening? This is the streets. These are the normal everyday individuals who are standing up and saying enough is enough. We're, we don't have any trust in the government. We don't have any trust in our police. This is the streets talking. And he's like, and we as human beings need to listen to the streets. Yep. And I just sat back and I watched that. I was like, yeah, I was like 100%. This is the streets that is talking. And if our own local governments, our own municipalities, if they cannot listen to the streets and what is happening, then we are doomed. Exactly. You know, and, and, and the other thing I'd say with this whole deal is, as Dave Chappelle put it, you know, when, when the people are talking about they're tired, you know, what you're seeing now is the result of a massive, massive fatigue. People are just tired, you know, at, at the streets. They're, and it's not just black people that are tired of it. There are elements of the white community. Asians are tired of it. Hispanics are tired of it. We all are collectively tired of this problem. And the streets are speaking out, not just out of anger, but out of fatigue. People are getting mm-hmm. sick of being kicked around every day. You know, people are getting sick of being pulled over um, by the police and mistreated by the police. And may I add this is, you know, there are many of us who comply. I've never been to jail a day in my life. And I've complied, but I've still been pulled over by the police. I've never done a drug, you know, at all. You know, um, the only thing I've done is, you know, drank alcohol at some point, you know, points in my life. But, you know, I've never been, you know, a trouble a troublemaker. And I know and there there are tons of black guys like me. And we've been pulled over numerous times. We've had to go to so many lengths. To make sure that that that, that trouble to avoid trouble or to be prepared for trouble, and we're tired of it. Um, and then the, there's even um, there's a brother who's who's either in the in Congress, who he gave a talk about how, and he's a leader in our government, and he went to to, to work, you know, uh, um, you had the badge and everything, and. Even he was stopped by the police and the guy, you know, at the gate and the security guard says the badge I know, but you, I don't know. This is a guy in government, you know, Um, and and then there was even a black police chief who got stopped by one of his own officers and he writes an article about it. So so it's this has been going on for so long and, and and people are tired of it. And I say this, you know, what you're seeing now. It just isn't rage. It just isn't anger. It just isn't rowdiness and people wanting to just break stuff and, and anarchy. It is massive fatigue by so many milieus in our society. And, and we're all tired, but we got to press on. We got to continue the workout for, for this three more minutes. And as I said before, and sure, and sure enough, um, the breakthrough will happen. We'll catch our second win and justice will come. That's my hope. That's a perfect way to end. Um, Scotty, I mean, I, I know we're friends and we've talked so much about other things, you know, in our private conversations, but I, I really appreciate you taking out the time to do this the last couple of weeks. Um, I know we could probably continue it ad nauseum, but I think we'll just stop for these two episodes. And I mean, I think both of our hopes, me as a white man, you as a black man is, to just encourage people to, like you said, keep pressing on, keep fighting the fight, yep. do that extra, get that second wind. Because if we remain silent, if we remain on the sidelines as people of faith or not people of faith, 
um, then, and as allies, you know, things aren't going to change mm-hmm. and it's going to go back to usual. Mm-hmm. And that is what, like Dave Chappelle said, the streets are talking. We need to, um, we need to let the streets do what they need to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I, and I know you would probably say this too. And if you want to say any closing thoughts, please do. But, you know, I just want to say to the white people listening, including myself, don't give up. Be an ally. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't be afraid of your white pr- fragility, but understand that you have white privilege and with your white privilege, do something that matters. Write your Congress people, write your senators, write your governor, write the churches that you're a part of and demand change because I feel like that's one of the only ways we can make things change, in, at least in the American culture and in society. Yeah, and, and I'll add to this, you know, um, to the white brothers and sisters and especially those who radically disagree with what we've talked about, we, you know, we as people of color, you know, you know, but I'll speak for myself. I'll speak and I'll say, and I believe a lot of us would 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 say would agree. We love you, and we want to hear what you are thinking. We want to know where you stand, because there's there's a saying: better an honest enemy than a false friend. And I think this is kind of also what's happened with allyship. There's been a lot of AKA false friends, and this is what Brother Malcolm warned about. With, with white liberals, is he said, you know, better that you have an honest enemy, someone who tells you what they think. Because if I know what you think, then we're on equal, then we're on level ground. Then we can work up, we can work on that. But if you're a false mm-hmm. friend and just saying I'm here and Black Lives Matter and yay and and it's terrible to have black people, and then under the table, you know, there's there's these other things, and, and we saw this with Brother Christian Cooper, the the sister that called. The police on him, it wasn't, you know, a, a Southern conservative, you know, um, you know, a, a red, you know, state Christian. This was a progressive um, lady from the North who, who, who's supposedly an ally, this sister was. And so I'd say, you know, be honest, you know, we love you and we want to hear what you're thinking. Most of us do at least, because if we know your honest thoughts, then we, we, we can work with that. So, yeah. Good words, Scotty. Good words. Thanks so much. Thank you too, bro. Um, th- th- thanks for doing this, man. Like, you know, even if it wasn't us talking, thanks for at least, you know, talking about it, having it, having it featured, bro. And you're helping people here yeah. too, you know, like, so we, we put the first um, chat on our website on a resources page for, for, um, for race and talking about it. And, um, you know, and, and you're touching people here in Switzerland, man. I, I'm just trying to, like I said earlier, I have a platform, albeit not a big one, but you know, if this can even help one or two people switch the narrative, um, and to, to, to do something, then that's important. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what I know you and I are trying to do little by little. So thank you, Scotty. Much love. Um, yeah. And we'll talk to you next time. Definitely, man. We'll talk next time. Alrighty. Bye. Lessons. Bye. Bye. Thanks for being part of our conversation. To continue the conversation, find us on social media at SacredMN. That was a post-Christian podcast.